Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Thank you for joining us at the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Before um, we get into our conversation here, I want to know kind of a little bit about your, your history. I know what you've done, and uh, but a lot of listeners might not. So, sure, sure. Uh, so kind of, you, you're a filmmaker, and uh, kind of where, where you uh, where you've been working, what have you been doing? Yeah, I um, ever since I was a kid, I was raised on a healthy diet of horror films. Uh, thank uh, goodness to my sister, who um, started me off with all the classic universal horror films, and then I graduated to slasher films. So, you know, I always had an intense interest in not just horror films, but I think in the macabre in general, you know, everything from the writings of Edgar Allan Poe to, you know, Halloween being my favorite, you know, holiday, and if you could call it a holiday, you know, um, always had an interest in the darker things. That that's that was just me. I always was fascinated more by the villain. I was always fascinated more by the Joker than Batman. You know, and I I, I enjoy each aspect, heroes and villains, but I'm always more fascinated by and I think the general public is always fascinated more by the villain because, you know, you in order to have light there's gotta be dark and vice versa. So, um was always interested in those. Uh, when I was a teenager, I started doing special makeup effects. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, of course, you know, had a love being, uh, love horror films, you know, that kind of went hand in hand. Um, and the friend of my, my best friend, who was also doing makeup effects with me, uh, his father was a detective at the uh, Chicago Police Department when Dahmer was arrested. So he had these, uh, photocopies of all the photos that Dahmer took and the complete confession that I had, you know, been able to see. And it left such an impression on my mind later that when I went to college, I made a short film based on the confession of Dahmer and the photos that I had seen. Because that even though I had known horror films such as Psycho, I never really knew, you know, some of these films were based on real people. And, you know, I, my, I didn't know there was an existence of these people. I had heard little of them, but it, mine was, my knowledge is more mainly of um, movie monsters, you know, and, 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 you know, fake psychos. So um, I decided to change course. Uh, instead of going to special makeup, I decided to become a filmmaker because I, I love film so much, and I thought, you know, this is something that I could do. Um, and then I went to Columbia College here in Chicago and uh, went to their film program. And while I was there, I was researching Chicago history, and I came across the story of H.H. H. Holmes, 
Well, it was mainly about his building, which, of course, is fascinating in itself. But when I read Harold Checker's book, Depraved, that's when I thought, wow, now here's somebody who went to medical school and had three wives and mistresses and, you know, really was an evil genius. And that, you know, even fleshed out his character more for me. And I thought this would be a perfect springboard once I graduate college to do a film on H.H. H. Holmes because no one had ever done a film on him. There were some books, uh, you know, uh, you know, several books about him prior. But I thought, you know, it was, it was amazing. So rather than, you know, having a multi-million dollar budget to do a feature film, I decided to do the truth story and research a documentary. And that kind of, you know, I fell into this niche of making serial killer films because I started researching serial killers. And, of course, I heard of Casey, you know, and Manson, who was an, even a serial killer, where Tex Watson was. But, you know, Dahmer and some of these, Ed Gein and these creepy serial killers. And I thought, you know you know, this is reality horror. And I always had an interest in horror films. And I thought, well, maybe I combine that with researching these true cases and um, research the history of the time period, the psychology of these serial killers, um, as, as well as, you know, make it, you know, kind of like a feature film in, in those regards and do reenactments. So I followed Holmes up with Albert Fish, uh, who is an elderly cannibal, uh, killing and cannibalizing children in New York in the 1920s. And then I followed that up with Carl Panzram, who was a uh, lifetime prisoner in these early jails and prisons who was abused, and he wrote his life story for a jail guard in 1928, um, you know, telling people how he was created. And then my latest film was um, serial killer culture because I had met through my journeys I had met artists and murderabilia collectors and forensic investigators so I thought well why not put them into a film called serial killer culture because there is this culture of people trading objects and reading books about serial killers and people making films about serial killers the whole the whole law enforcement system you know I mean all of these people could be could fall under the umbrella of serial killer culture um, and that's the latest film. Uh, several of those are on Netflix now. And I'm currently working on a documentary on Vincent Castiglia, who's a New York-based artist who paints in his own blood as well as the blood of his collectors. So I'm still kind of, you know, on that macabre <laughs> journey. Um, you know, if it has to do with, you know, blood or, or murder or serial killers, um, you know, I've always been interested in those subjects. I was a lover of Hitchcock films ever since I was younger. So, yeah. and it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty universal interest. I think everybody's interested in it to a certain degree, you know. Do, do, do you have a theory on why you think that is? I think it's because we don't come across these things in our day-to-day -day lives. You know, unfortunately now we're hearing more about these mass murders and school shootings and workplace shootings. But, um, you know, still on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, we go to our job, we come home, we eat dinner, we watch the late show. That's about it. You know, and we, when we hear these stories of cannibals or multiple murderers, it is so, you know, far out from our own, you know, grasp of reality, I think we're fascinated by it. You know, you're going to see something like this on TV after you've just come home from work or had a long day. Some people want to ignore it, but the majority of the people will turn up the volume and say, well, what is this? You know, because again, I think as human beings, we try to figure out why other people are doing these things, especially multiple murders over and over and over again without stopping or being, you know, not at least not stopping until they're apprehended. So, um, you know, again, I think it's, it's just, a, it's always been a universal human fascination going back to the beginning of time. And there's quite a difference between, let's say, the, uh, the, the mass killings, like what's going on with the schools and serial killers. That's kind of a different, different animal there. Yes. You know. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're both definitely different. I've studied the, the psychopathy of serial killers and, and sociopaths. Whereas, you know, the mass murderers could kind of fall under the umbrella of uh, psychopaths where, you know, these mass murderers usually, uh, they, they create this one event to gain this attention to say, look, you know, I was, I was here, I was in pain, nobody helped me, and now you're going to remember me from this one event. You know, obviously if you're a serial killer, you know, you're going to be remembered too, but I think deep-rooted psychologically that has more to do with environmental factors, probably both of those situations. 
But, you know, I've studied serial killers and people say, why did we do these things? Well, we still don't know why. I interviewed Gacy's psychiatrist. She brought Gacy's brain in a pickle jar to the interview. She studied his brain and found nothing abnormal. Now, here's a guy with 33 bodies in his crawl space, but his brain is normal. So you go figure that. You know, people think it's genetic. People think it's brain injury. You know, through my studies, I think environment, especially between the ages of 7 and 12, play a big factor in, you know, creating these future serial killers. And it, it may not necessarily be um, abuse. It could be some sort of trauma that was observed or, you know, suffered during that time period. You know, this great book, Real Life Monsters, by author Stephen uh, and forensic psychologist, uh, Stephen Giannangelo, which is a phenomenal book that, you know, talks about these new theories, you know, because the FBI created the term serial killer, and they had their theories, and they, they, they've, you know, changed them a little bit, you know, it could be, you know, one or two murders with, you know, the possibility of committing more instead of three murders, so, you know, they're, you know, it's kind of in flux right now, but I'm glad, again, I'm glad we could talk about these things, because some people... You just don't want to hear about murder. They don't want to hear about serial killers. But, you know, we all want to know and, and hopefully eventually find the answers. You know, now they're beginning, uh, I, I heard they're beginning camps for children, young children that show signs of becoming future psychopaths. Because what do you do? You know, you see a child that has so much hate in them and wants to only hurt and harm themselves or others. And, 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 you know, what do you do with them? You know, in 1874, Jesse Pomeroy was 14 years old when, in Boston when they were going to hang him at 14 years old. But luckily he had, you know, it was commuted to, you know, uh, life in solitary, but it was like a life of death pretty much because he just was in this one room for the rest of his life and he could only see three people. So, you know, again, there's so much to talk about legality-wise, psychologically-wise, history-wise, and that's where, you know, many people, I think, have this fascination with H.H. H. Holmes because it was this burgeoning time period, the Gilded Age, you know, we had all these successful people, and Holmes wanted to. He, he, he you know, he went by that, you know, um, I don't know what you call it, that, that kind of, you know, um, you know, desire to, to be, you know, a Carnegie or somebody great, but and every he saw everyone and everything as a dollar sign pretty much. It was just, you know, means to an end for him. Right. Right. So now they they call him the first serial killer because really the term was named after his work, as we'd say. Right, um, you know, and, and that's what not many people know. The first time someone was called a multi murderer was Holmes by the Chicago Tribune. You know, that was the first time we hear that term. You know, uh, before that, you know, there was no really no term. And then you flat, you know, you fast forward into the 70s when the FBI created the term serial killer. But, you know, before that, we didn't know what, what you know, to call these people. And, and also at that time period, you have the printing press beginning, newspapers getting out there. Yes, in America, there were, you know, and, and you know, I get upset at this all the time. Yeah. You know, people will go on these posts on the internet and say, Holmes was not America's first serial killer. I'm the coolest person in the world. Well, it's like, okay, I'll admit he isn't. That He, he wasn't America's first serial killer. There were the bloody benders, you know, who were in Kansas who were renting a room and killing people. But the bloody benders disappeared. They were never to be found. So, you know, there wasn't a trial, you know, whereas Holmes, there was evidence, there was a trial, he was termed multi-murderer, and he, again, he literally laid the groundwork for all future serial killers because, you know, and there were many after Holmes that wrote about him. Albert Fish wrote about H.H. H. Holmes and told his psychiatrist, Dr. Wortham, about H.H. H. Holmes. BTK, I was involved in the BTK case because he had written about H.H. H. Holmes. So, you know, there, there are, some of these serial killers do know about their predecessors, and, and some are, you know, just oblivious of it, and they just do their murders. Like, I don't think Dahmer was a big fan of all these serial killers that went before him, but there are some that, that know of them, and they even want to top them. So, again, you look at Holmes and what he did, no other serial killer in history constructed a building basically to, you know, uh, get rid of his human victims. I mean, you know, that, I mean, that's a pretty big feat. Now, so when at that point, okay, so now H.H. Um, H. Holmes, when he um, actually built that, that, got that building for the World's Fair, 
Was that the first time he had ever, had he ever murdered before then? Well, you know, it's, it's unsure exactly when murders began. He began his life insurance scams when he was at the University of Michigan. That's when he began getting cadavers, and he had a friend that he would disfigure the cadaver, and, you know, a relative, he would have the relative, uh, the friend take out a life insurance policy on himself. A relative would come forward and say, yeah, you know, uh, crying, I can't believe that's my brother, yes, and then they would all split the money, and his friend would go into hiding. So, you know, he had access to these cadavers and corpses at medical school. So, you know... Not much is really known about Holmes' childhood or his early days, and I'm sure he wanted it to be that way because he was a big-time master manipulator, you know, and, and such a forward thinker that, you know, people ask me, well, he had three wives. Why didn't he kill any of his wives? He killed his secretaries or, you know, mistresses. Well, it's my theory that he was such a forward thinker that he knew if eventually he was apprehended, he would need somebody to say something good about him. Now, his second wife, he set up in the nice suburbs here in Chicago and were met in a nice house with their child. What was the first thing she said when the press came to, you know, investigate after Holmes was apprehended? Well, she said, I don't know what he does in that building in Chicago, but he never hung near my child. Well, of course she's not going to say anything. You know, that was a deal that they kind of had, you know. So, you know, there, there are many things we don't know about the case. There are definitely things we do know but there are things we don't know. Holmes may have began when he was a child. There are stories maybe he killed a friend of his when he was a young child or, you know, in college, you know, he might have done some murders when he was doing these life insurance scams. But we really don't know. We can't pinpoint, oh, this is the first murder. It's very difficult to pinpoint that. But there are definitely people that disappeared while he was operating this castle you know, people that he was involved with. And that's where the author, Hill Schechter of Derange says he could say he believes definitively at least nine people if you want to put a number on it. You know, Holmes confessed later to 26. One of the people came forward later and said, I'm not murdered. So, you know, with these serial killers, too, they want to throw a wide net and say, I've killed 60, 26, 60, 100, 300, you know, but then where's the actual proof? And Holmes may have killed hundreds. We don't know. I think, you know, it may have been a little difficult. He was a pretty busy guy, you know, with his wives and the building and the fair and, you know, scams and all these things he was doing. But, uh, you know, he definitely was a serial killer. Yeah. And so so when he started, like, his whole purpose of the, of the hotel was to kill people. But... Was he killing them for the thrill of killing, or what what was his what was his angle there? Well, and you know and and that's the thing. you know some serial killers you could see a direct motivation. Like I was talking earlier about this Carl Panzram, who I don't even I can't even prove that he was a serial killer, and i, I I've done a film on him, but you know the, my film studied more about what maybe created him as a psychopath. Because, again, there is no proof to these murders. There's proof he killed one person, the laundry foreman in Leavenworth. But supposedly the motivation behind his murders was revenge. He said he was treated awfully in these prisons and electrocuted and whipped and beaten. So, you know, he just took it out on society. And anybody he'd come across, you know, if he wanted to kill him, he would murder them. Because he was created by, you know, our you know prison system. Well, Holmes, I believe, was a financially motivated murderer. Everything that he did and everyone that he murdered, you know, he achieved something out of it, whether it was financial or real estate or property. Everybody. He would have these people sign over property to him and then write letters saying, oh, I'm going away, and, you know, they'd never be seen again, but, oh, he gets the property, or he, you know, he did that in Fort Worth, Texas. And in Fort Worth, Texas, he actually had... You know, uh, I think it was Minnie Williams. It, it was one of these, you know, mistresses of his that he had him sign over this property. But then, you know, he was going to build another building like he did here in Chicago. And it would be like Sweeney Todd where the bodies could be dumped directly into the sewer. And he, he even went there, but, you know, he had some trouble in St. Louis and was arrested. So nothing ever came of that, you know, uh, Texas deal. But it was all financially motivated, you know, and, and, and the, the biggest one, of course, which he was caught for was the Peitzel family. I mean, he, he murdered 
the husband and three of these children, and he wanted to wipe out the entire family so that he could keep that entire life insurance uh, policy benefit money for himself. Initially, he w- he did split it with the family, but he wanted to murder all of them so that he would get to keep it all for himself. So, you know, he would do these life insurance scams, real real estate scams, property scams. You know, he would, you know, again, it was almost always after he achieved some sort of financial or property gain. Wow. So it was... It was- and it was... It, and it was men, women, or children, you know, unfortunately. And that was the worst part about it, that these children were caught in the middle of it. So that's kind of bizarre, as we know serial killers today, because most of the time they tend to have some sort of M.O. They like, they like a certain type of, you know, uh, the way a girl looks, or hair color, her age, uh, you know, or in the way they kill people. It's You know, they have kind of a lot of the same, I don't know, uh, ways of doing it. So he didn't really care if it was man, woman, child, didn't matter. Um, person, personalized, no, you know, but he did have the same MO, the same modus operandi, where, you know, it would, again, it, it, it would have to be a financial gain plus his methods. You know, he was a very hands-off serial killer. Almost everything he did was either gas or burning you know, when you look at these things, you would gas people to death or when they were knocked out, you know, uh, chloroform or burn them. You know, there, some people believe, experts believe that even murder can be a form of communication when you when the murder is communicating with the victim by either strangling them or stabbing them. There's this connection there. Whereas Holmes, you know, you could kind of see his whole attitude and that was him like, oh, you know, I'm very hands off. You know, I'll trick these two little girls into getting into this trunk, and then I'll lock it, and I'll put the gas line, you know, in there and, and asphyxiate them. So, you know, he was this very, uh, and again, his attitude was, you know, being a highly intelligent, pretty much a genius, that he was above everyone else. So, you know, I think, you know, his MO was was the fun, the planning of it. He could have murdered Benjamin Peitzel at any point he wanted to, but he knew he was going to be that pawn that he was going to be there when he needed him for this life insurance scam. He he had that in the back of his head. He could have murdered him in a second at any point, but he didn't. Why? Because he saved him. You know, and so he, everyone to him was a pawn, whether it was a wife, you know, a, a supposed friend or business acquaintance, you know, just waiting for the right time where he could, you know, either use them for a scam or possibly murder them and, you know, get money out of it for a scam in some way. So it was about the money. Uh, in the big picture but now but on the now from what i heard now in the bottom of the hotel he had uh, as they'd say operating room torture room um whatever you want to call them and he actually was doing things to their bodies well and that's you know there was someone that had worked in the castle testified you know, or, you know, gave testimony to a newspaper that after Holmes had murdered one of his victims, you know, he was instructed to take this female skeleton to the, either the Hanuman Medical Museum or one of these universities or medical schools in the city. So, you know, Holmes, again, being an evil entrepreneur, and you look at this building, which was devised in ways where he could throw a body down a grease chute or have them carry down a secret staircase from his third floor office. Um, you know, so there were many ways these bodies could get from the third floor into the basement, but they did find a dissection table. They found a crematorium that Holmes said claimed was for glass banding um, because they, that was very popular at the time. And then they found quicklime bats and acid bats. And, you know, there was eventually some sort of little explosion in the basement when they were investigating it because there were these gases that were released from a tank. So, you know, he he did, you know, supposedly what he, he did was, you know, he would take these victims and he, that stayed there during the World's Fair and take their money and valuables because, of course, they would just arrive there and there were many people that were missing or disappeared during that time period. And he would take their money and valuables and, you know, sell their skeletons to medical schools. And that's, again, that's, you know, that, how do you document that? You know, and people say, well, how did he get away with that? Well, and, you know, who knows, at that time period, it could have been a handshake. I'm a doctor. You see my business. You know, I have this building. You know, we, there are many unanswered questions, 
you know, of, of how he went about these things. But, you know, again, it's, it, he was definitely a, a devious entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so what was going on in the sense that, okay, so he's doing this. He had help because he had employees that were working with him. So now, in a way, weren't they involved or didn't they at least know? Yes. It was, so didn't they know it was, they knew it was going on? Um, yeah, and and you know, there's there's a theory which I I have an interview that I've never released, but I, I videotaped an interview with the author Ellen Eckert, and he wrote a book on Holmes called The Scarlet Mansion, which is excellent. He used uses you know he researched the case thoroughly, but he creates it like a fictional book, so you're not reading like a true crime book. You know, it reads like a fictional book, you know, with dialogue. But he said, you know, almost everything in there, 95, 98% was taken from existing resources, newspaper excerpts, you know, anything he could find. And when I interviewed him, he it was his belief that he had some sort of proof that Holmes' second wife even knew somewhat about what Holmes was doing. You know, who knows how, how many details she knew, but he believed that. And there were several workers in the castle uh, you know, there was a, a janitor that worked in the castle, and, and some people think maybe even Peitzel knew about, you know, he was Holmes's right-hand man, so maybe he knew about some of these things. Again, to what extent was it the actual murders? Was it just, you know, the scams? Was it covering things up? You know, not much of that is known in detail either. But, you know, don't forget, after he was arrested, the top floor, someone attempted to burn the castle down the building that, you know, he had created. And now no one knows if it's like the Adine case where it was just local people that wanted to wipe it away, or was it a cohort of Holmes's who Holmes had instructed, okay, if anything happens to me, burn that building down because I don't want them to find a trace of anything that, you know, I, they, they may be able to come after me for. Hmm. And then that brings up the other part. What about his family, his wife? Well, which one? Yeah, well, that's that's. He was that's married true. to three women at the same time. Yeah, he had that... a wife, and his first wife was Gilman in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, who he had left when he had went away to college in Michigan. Then he had met Murda Belknap. That was his second wife, who he had the child with and lived in the suburb. He had her set up in the house here in the suburbs in Chicago, and we met. And then his third wife, Georgiana Yoke was this young woman in her early 20s that he met at a department store and married her. You know, and she was the one that went with him on this whole kind of Midwest journey, traveling with these Peitzel children, figuring out a place where he could kill them eventually. So, you know, and, and I don't believe Georgiana Yoke really knew anything. I, I think during the journey, she suspected things because at the trial she'd say, well, he'd come in at one point, you know, sweaty and flustered and, you know, uh, seemingly in a rush, and we had to move from place to place. So I think she probably wondered, well, what's really going on? But who in their right mind, whoever would think that? Oh, yeah, well, my new husband that I just married is a businessman and, you know, a medical expert slash doctor. Well, he's killing everybody for profit. You know, you would never think that, I guess, especially at that time period. So, you know, um, and I think if a, a receptionist or a secretary or someone that worked for him found out, you know, they were murdered immediately as well. Wow. And so now I had about two hours of interview with uh, Jeffrey Mudgett. Mm -hmm. And um, so how, is, how did his family tie into it? His, well, that, that's, that's what I'm not sure of. I'm, I'm actually um, not even sure if he's related. You know, that I, I haven't seen any proof. Um, Jeff Mudgett does say he's uh, the... I think it's the great great grandson or great great grandson of Herman Webster Mudgett, which was Holmes's real name. Right. But um, you know, uh, that's that's basically all he says that you know he's the great great grandson or great great grandson. You know, I've never you know seen official paperwork or, or see, and, and, you know I, I don't even know if he's he is really related. You know, again, and being a researcher, you know, working on documentaries, I usually I look for an ultimate proof. And you know when I when I obviously can't find the, the root of it, I you know I either I move on and I don't cite it or you know I do. The only way I was happy that I knew Holmes's actual birthday is because I had found a um, birth certificate of his from New Hampshire. Because even when I do research on the internet, there was there were different dates as far as his actual birth date. So you know I think he says he's his great great grandson. 
Yeah. As far yeah. as what I, well, from what I've. But you, so you've had no real you could you, you couldn't really locate or follow that up, or you didn't really you don't know what that's about then. Well, no, you know, I I finished my film. Um, I began my film in 2000, finished it around 2003, began screening it. It was released officially uh, on a video label for distribution in 2005. And The Devil in the White City book came out, I think, just before that, like a year before that. I had no idea it was coming out because right when I was finishing mine up, everyone was, you know, the buzz started to spread and people were like, wow, you know, you've got to hurry up to get your movie out there because this book's coming out. It could be big, you know. Nobody, you know, really knew because... Larson, Eric Larson's other books haven't, you know, been as successful as, the, you know, the double book. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm sure that, you know, the popularity of that, you know, book helped my film out and probably vice versa, you know, because people do like to see the visuals. And, you know, when, when his book was initially published, the multi-billionaire publishing company, I don't know what it is, but they had initially contacted me, you know, to, and asked me about photos of homes because, you know, I, I, I was working on my phone for like four years around that point. And, uh, you know, the reason why their first edition print. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. King of the Devil in the White City you know, has no photo of homes on the cover. It was really because of me, because I wouldn't allow them to use, you know, any of my photos that I had on, on homes. Yeah. And so so now he, um, how did he get caught? Holmes, uh, well, that's, that's an interesting story in itself. Holmes was arrested, believe it or not, for horse stealing when him and Peitzel had uh, went through St. Louis. They were arrested for attempting to steal horses, you know. So, you know, he was in jail, and he meets a criminal by the name of, uh, uh, his name escapes me at this point, but he was called the Marion Hedgepath. Mm 
he was called the handsome bandit because, you know, at that time, you still had the old West, you still had these bandits, and he was called the handsome bandit because women were enamored by him. They would throw roses in his cell, and, you know, he's pretty, no, he wasn't as big as some of these other bandits that we've heard of, but he was pretty popular at the time. So Holmes kind of, you know, told him about this plan where he was going to, you know, open an office somewhere and, you know, do this, like, fake life uh, insurance scam, and, you know, he needed an attorney to help him kind of push that through, you know, the whole scam, you know, and, and you know, so Marion Hedgepath gave him the name of this crooked attorney, and Holmes said, oh, well, cool, you know, I'm glad you did that. I'll send you $500 when I get out, and that'll make us even. You've given me a referral, I'll send you $500. Well, the issue was Holmes never followed up on that. Holmes never sent him the money he owed him. So eventually when Holmes went through with this life insurance scam and Marion Hedgepath read about it, the first thing he says is, warden, you know. So the, he gets involved with the warden. They get involved with the Fidelity Mutual Life Insurance Company, which was in Philadelphia, which is where the murder actually occurred. And they sent the Pinkerton detectives on Holmes's trail. So he was arrested by the Pinkerton detectives in Boston, and that that was the beginning of the end, really. And when he's arrested, he's supposed to have three children of the Pico family in his custody. Well, he doesn't. So, you know, there's even more to the story, and it's a very gripping and, you know, ultimately tragic, you know, story that involved, you know, him murdering these three children, you know, and, uh, you know, just, uh, just awful. Yeah. And so now... Again, I don't want to bring up Jeff too much, but when when I talk to Jeff Matchett, now he's claiming, so I, I guess I know this, that when he was hung and buried, they buried him in cement. Yes, and, yeah, and you know, and nobody, you know, again, you know, I'd like to turn back the time and ask these officials why they carried that out, because... You know, the, I, I don't know if they legally have to carry out a prisoner's, uh, you know, a criminal's last request, but Holmes didn't want to be operated on like he operated on so many other people. And at the time, it was in vogue to begin studying the brains of serial killers. Um, and he didn't want that to happen. Holmes, you know, did not want that to happen. He didn't want anyone messing around with his brain or his body. So his last request was that he be buried 10 feet within the ground, Concrete poured on top of him in his casket, and then more concrete poured on top of his cast on the top of his casket, which supposedly they carried out. And you know he's buried in Holy Cross Cemetery in Yeda, in Pennsylvania. I went there and I you know I went to their office and they said, okay, you know here's the list of graves and his grave is here. It's unmarked, and you know it takes a while to find it because you're just going through this huge graveyard. But eventually, you know, through the map that they gave me, I found it, and it's just a little piece of land. There's no marker on it whatsoever. But supposedly he's in there under 10 feet of concrete. Well, because that's what Jeff was saying, Mudgett, that he was, uh, they were petitioning to have the body uh, taken up, and they want to test his DNA against him. Yeah, that would be interesting. You know, I mean, it would be interesting to see how you'd get this block of concrete out and then actually, you know, if there was concrete poured on top of him, you know, get into that, you know, I guess it would be like Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> Where you're, you have amber and you're drilling into the amber and you pull the blood out, is it actually him? You know, I don't, you know, to me, I don't doubt it for a second. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I mean, there, there are newspaper drawings, you know, uh, you know, that research that show Holmes, you know, being led to the gallows. There are newspaper reports, you know, so I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't dispute that in any way whatsoever. That that is Holmes in that grave, you know. I, I don't see why it wouldn't be. Well, he's sort of claiming that uh, they don't think it is Holmes. Right. Yeah. Well, he doesn't. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And I again, I don't see why not. I think he has, you know, another, uh, you know, another one of the theories is that, you know, Holmes may have gotten someone to take his place and he escaped and, you know, was still alive after that. And, I, you know, again, I don't see that happening. I mean, you know, I'd like to know step by step how that happened, because once someone's in, you know, Moyamensing prison, how do they get 
out of that prison, switch places with someone. And then, you know, again, when you realistically think of these theories, you know, any intelligent person with two brain cells sits down and starts thinking of these theories that Jeff Mudgett puts forward, it's laughable. (laughs) It seriously is. I mean, you could do a comedy film on this. So, I mean, there's really, you know, it it is what it is. But, you know, again, I I usually go by research and and the things that I've researched and, uh, you know, and... um, that's 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 what I know, you know. And, and again, I can't say whether he's down there, but I really don't see any anyone taking an effort. And I don't know. Again, that's out of my realm. But I don't know if the government would be involved. But I really don't see any impetus for the government to say, "Oh yeah, you know what? We're going to throw a ton of money into this project just to see if this is really him in there." They don't yeah. give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. really, who does other than budget? You know, right. trying to sell books, really. Yeah. Yeah. And and so and when you get this now you've been doing serial killers now for a while you've been involved in the whole thing what's your take on why certain ones get such I don't know notoriety or popularity they stick out stay with us for years and years and years and other ones don't Yeah and you know there there that's that's always an interesting thing too you know I mean there there is this theory that the um the press create celebrities out of these serial killers. And looking back, that, you know, you could give some credence to that because they were on the cover of Life magazine. You know, Ed Gein was in Life magazine. Manson was on the cover. They'd been on news media all over the places, you know, newspapers, television, movies. You know, you know they have kind of been created as celebrities. Sometimes I think the more heinous, you know, the murders, or the more psychologically abnormal, the more people are fascinated by them, you know. Um, or it, 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 it could be that time period. You know, in America, you had this big peak of serial killers between the 70s and the 90s. And, you know, now it's kind of either changed, you know, it's either, you know, altered to being mass killings or the news isn't really, they've caught on to it. Maybe they're not publicizing, you know, these serial killers anymore or do we just not have... And, you know, I was giving a, a lecture yesterday, and, you know, that brings up the, the, um, the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, it's not the psychological, it's, a, it's the uh, social aspect, you know, the, these trends in society, you know, that we have, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, things occurring during these time periods, but, but again, while I was, you know, there was this big peak between the 70s and the 90s, and before that, yes, there were serial killers, and yes, there are now, but why, why was it at that time period in America? You know, and, and again, you know, I think that, you know, we may have to look at different trends in, in society and history, and, you know, that, that again is for, you know, someone else to come up with, but, you know, um, through my studies, I, I mainly look at the psychology of these serial killers and try and figure out what they do through interviewing forensic psychologists and other experts, um, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I think sometimes the more heinous or gruesome the crimes. I mean, you know, Ed Gein, how he would dress in, in a clo- you know, in the skin of women and, you know, had the one body trussed up as a deer in his, you know, barn. I mean, he only supposedly killed two people, but, you know, he's, he, he's inspired the movie Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, you know, part of the killer from Silence of the Lambs. You know, so, you know, again, I think, you know, and you, you have Gacy, who was the killer clown, you know, with 33 bodies in his crawl space, and Albert Fish, who was, you know, sent a letter to Grace Budd, the mother of the victim, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Grace Budd was the victim, and he sent a letter to the mother describing how he cooked an eater, you know, how more gruesome can you get than that? So sometimes I think, you know, if it involves cannibalism or vampirism or, you know, number count, you know, I think that that could be involved in the popularity of a serial killer as well. Yeah. Now, you, you wrote about, uh, or you did the uh, another documentary, and that was on Albert Fish, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, that was my second film. Yeah. And when, when, you know, when you were doing something like that, or when, of course, something in more modern daytimes as compared to Holmes, um, do you go out and... Do you ever get involved in the storyline as in meeting the people that were involved or the family or friends or anything like that? 
No, I've never done that. You know, and and because these cases are so long ago, there there isn't really that much of a direct connection. Usually, what happens, and this has happened in all of my films, while I'm making it, when the website is up or when the news hits that I'm making it or finishing it, I'll be contacted by you know a descendant of the family. Yeah. You know, I had checks from I had actual personal checks from Mudgets in New Hampshire that bought the Holmes DVD. And, you know, these were these were <laughs> the descendants of the serial killer, you know. Yeah. And I had Pikeville family, you know, uh, the victims' families that were buying the DVD and had gotten in touch with me. And they all said, you know, we're glad you're telling the story because, again, I, I see it as history and these stories should be told. And, you know, there, there are important lessons to be learned. Um, and Albert Fish was the same case. You know, I think it was when I was making the film, a, a, a descendant of the family living now said, you know, I just want to let you know, I don't want to be a part of the film. I just want to let you know that, you know, that we're, we're still out there. And I just recently had a baby daughter and, you know, again, and the same thing with Carl Panzer and some of his descendants. It's, and they're a little excited about it too, because it is part of their history that they've either heard, you know, a little lore about or, or, you know, these stories told. Um, but no, it, 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 I've had really, you know, when I'm making the film, for me, it's really all about the research. Um, and I don't put too much emphasis on the newspapers because the early newspapers were more like the National Enquirer. Many times they, you know, misspelled things and they misquoted. And, and you know, I usually go back to, you know, the case files whenever I can find those. And like for H.H. H. Holmes, the majority of my research was really in Philadelphia where the case was solved. There wasn't much here in Chicago at all. So, um, and Albert Fish, it was in New York, and for Carl Panzeram, it was really all across the country. And sometimes these things are hard to come by. I was lucky enough to um, meet Joel Goodman from San Diego State University when I did my film on Carl Panzeram because he was actually a student when the J when Panzeram's jail guard was at the university. This was in 1980. So he had gotten to meet him, and he had this whole box of materials that the jail guard had given to him. So he said, John, I'm going to ship these to you for your research. So things like that, I get lucky, and and it's nice that people are helpful, that they you know want to be, you know, that they do want to help with these, the film and the cases to, to have the truth and the true story out there. Yeah. Do you ever get any negative? Sometimes, but not really. You know, sometimes, I mean, you know, um, and, you know, I, I get, you know, either emails or, you know, obviously it's easier to, you know, for armchair critics to write things on, you know, on Amazon and Netflix. They they put their little two cents in there. But, you know, there, there are some that, you know, it's harder to, to criticize something intelligently. So there are people that would just throw, ah, oh, this is stupid. But then, you know, some people say, you know, why we shouldn't hear about Carl Panzeram's story. Forget it. We shouldn't. You know, this is just garbage. We, you know, this man is just full of hate. But Panzeram's lesson. The reason why I was so fascinated by Carl Panzeram was because, you know, there are few, if any, other serial killers that I know of that tried to leave us with a lesson. And when through his writings and his autobiography, he said, you know, here's how you cheat children so that they don't become like me. Treat. Uh, teach them these words, but not just the words, what the meaning of the words are, truth, love, you know, caring, hate, love, you know, all these things. And and there was even more to that because he was involved in these prisons and jails his entire life. So, if, you know, he had just as good of an assessment of the penal institution and, you know, prisons and jails and law enforcement as anyone working in the industry. He made an interesting point. When you read his writings, you're like, well, you know, for a sixth, sixth grade education, he has some points here. You know, he said, who really profits off of, you know, crime? Is it the criminals when they get locked behind bars? Well, you know, it's the actual law enforcement system. Because without the criminal, they'd all be out of jobs, you know, and, and so they're in a way profiting off of it. And, you know, he makes these interesting, you know, uh, you know, little tidbits in his writing, and, and he's very eloquent. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, researching that took me all across. I went, you know, to several prisons, Leavenworth and um, Clinton Prison and Dannemora, and, man, uh, just oppressive institutions. Wow, yeah. And and then you did this serial killer culture. So is that kind of like an overview of everything? Yeah, it is. You know, it has, 
some bios of serial killers, some actual footage of serial killers. But what I wanted to do, my intention was to give some of these collectors, these murderabilia collectors and these artists, their opportunity to talk and tell their side of the story. Because what, what happens is the news media covers it or if other people cover it, they're broken down to a, a five-second soundbite where they, they, they're made to look like the weirdo that because they're, ooh, they're collecting the stuff or selling it or doing a painting on it or a song on it. They must be a weirdo. But when you watch this film, they're regular people just like all the, uh, like all the rest of us. You know, Rick Staten, he's a, a mortician. You know, he was Gacy's art dealer. You know, he had an interest in collecting this stuff, and it didn't really go beyond that. That was it. You know, now his place is filled with, uh, you know, monster movies post, monster movie posters. He still has some of his collection left, but he, you know, he he's kind of grown out of it. Now you have other people that are there's a younger generation now that you know they either have websites selling the stuff or, you know, and there's a whole debate. You know, is anyone profiting off of it? Are they not? You know. But then I also had artists in the film as well, painters and musicians and filmmakers, just talking about their fascination with serial killers, you know, and why, you know, why they create their art based on these stories. Hmm. Yeah. So Dark History Con, how was that? Oh, that was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, you know, second year you know, up, and I just heard that they are going to have it in 2016. You know, initially, uh, it began as the crime scene, and there were several of those in Indianapolis, Indiana, that I attended. And then um, Brian took over the hell and created the Stark History Con, and it's it's really amazing. You know, in one place where you could go, you know, there was an ex-convict there that is now a writer you know, that writes for Vice and, and has published books. I mean, he was he was in prison for 20-something years for, for uh, drug drug dealing, I think. You know, and, you know, we may be working together soon on some projects. A very, you know, intelligent, you know, man. Um, you know, there there was Hart Fisher who published the Dahmer comic, who's, you know, uh, the survive the families of the Dahmer victims sued him, and he won that case against them because he published the Dahmer comic. You know, there were, I mean, you know, forensic psychologists, even Giangelo was there. You know, I was there. There were, you know, other authors and artists and experts. And it was really, to me, I, I, it was a phenomenal event, you know. And, uh, you know, anyone who would even be remotely interested, you know, in, in the topic, you know, definitely should think about going next year. There was a, a young woman that I met from, uh, she came all the way from Washington, D.C., you know, to come to, uh, you know, Champaign, Illinois, just to see the event. Mm. Again, you know, you're, you're meeting people, you're having discussions with them, and, and I think that's the greatest thing. That, that's why I love going to any of these conventions. I love meeting new people and talking to them, and we could have a half-hour conversation on psychology or serial killers or history or anything in general. And uh, it's a great opportunity to meet the people behind, you know, these books, the artists, and, and hear their stories, too. Yeah, sounds like a very interesting um, thing, and it should be uh, something that hopefully grows bigger and bigger each year. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hope, and, and it looks like it will. You know, it's in its like I said, it's in its infancy, so you know, it just takes time, you know, to to really, you know, uh, you know, to to get everything in order. But uh, yeah, it was a, definitely a success. This this latest one was uh, really amazing. I had a great time, and you know, they screened. Uh, my film, Serial Killer Culture, Hart Fisher was there. There were several people involved in that film that were there. And, um, you know, uh, again, it was just a great time. And, and that's the feedback I hear from people coming to these events. They said they love talking to the to the guests and the artists and, and actually meeting them and, and, you know, getting to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. You're not watching them on YouTube or on a soundbite. You actually hear their stories, you know, face-to-face. -face. Yeah, yeah, there is always something different about that, you know. Uh, where do you see yourself going now? What's next? You know, I uh, I'm doing this uh, documentary now. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I'm Vince Castiglia. Um, you know, I, I I always loved art as well. I've always been an art lover. I'm uh, also working on a documentary on a Chicago artist that passed away last year, who was a photographer, and he actually um, photographed the Klan. He wasn't a member of, but. Uh, he did photograph them. They almost killed him because they thought he was an informant. Um, he, uh, you know, was an inspirational artist because he actually drew his way out of prison. 
you know, which is an interesting story. He would draw the outside of this prison every day that he was in it. And he was in it for defacing some artwork because they didn't pay him. He painted a billboard, they didn't paint him, so he went back and he splashed paint on it. So they put him in prison for 30 days. Well, 27 days into his sentence, he told the warden, I want to get in front of the judge. Well, each day he would draw the outside of this building of the prison, and it was miraculous. He drew it on a big piece of uh, brown wrapping paper. So he gets in front of the judge at 27 days and said, look, I have a gift from God. I don't belong in here. The judge said, you're right. I'm releasing you right now, but I want a copy of that. <laughs> Boom. Dabbled down. He, he drew his way out of prison. <laughs> now, you know, and he's a phenomenal, you know, artist, too, that, again, he passed away last year. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to do a documentary on him. So, And I'm writing several psychological crime thrillers, you know, so I want to do feature films. And, and when you watch my films, they're, they're very film-like, you know, they're reenactments, there's scenes, there's uh, like music that's like a feature film, vessel of film music, and, you know, I've studied that over the years. And, uh, you know, so I want to start getting into feature films, hopefully make my first one next year. Um, so working on that and and, uh, you know, just continuing forward, you know, I am still interested in serial killers, you know, so I think I'll still be doing these, but, you know, not only serial killers, you know, trying to possibly move into other genres of documentaries and films, because I love all films, really, so I, I, not just horror or crime, but I would like to even do family films, so I tell people that, they're like, what, really? No, that's not <laughs> family films, too, you know, <laughs> so I, I love all film genres. Yeah, Brady Bunch on Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there'd be a lot of murders there. Yeah. <laughs> Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hunting them down one at a time. Yeah, one at a time. That would be kind of fun. Um, now, so, now, what are your influences? Who is it that kind of inspires you? Really, for me, I mean, there are some filmmakers. I mean, the main one would be Hitchcock because it was really, you know, um, I always loved his films growing up. You know, watching his films would be, you know, and you know how this is the old days when you'd watch movies on TV. They'd come out once a year, a couple times a year, and it was a big event. And you'd, oh, Saturday, you know, 7 o'clock, Psycho's on. Oh, my God, you know, always. We're always in front of the TV for that. You know, because I, I loved his films, but years later when I actually studied the psychology behind his shots and what he put into it and how he planned it, because his favorite thing was playing the films, and I thought, man, you know, the combination, the technical ability, which we don't see as much anymore from, you know, current cinema, but, but back then, the technique, the edits, the camera movement, the props, the mirrors and the shot, everything was put there purposely to create, you know, an impact on a viewer, whether it was black and white or in color, you could, you know, throw color into the psychology of cinema. So there was always a psychology behind it. And I read a great book called The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, written by Donald Spada, which the whole book, it's, it's like a Bible of Hitchcock's films, studying them psychologically, every shot pretty much, and it's just phenomenal. So, you know, filmmakers like him and then others who, of course, learn from him, like Martin Scorsese and, you know, Spielberg, you know, um, some of these directors that, you know, kind of learn from the classic editing and filmmaking techniques of their predecessors. Uh, those are my favorites. And, you know, there, there are still, you know, some out now that are doing it. I think Tarantino still does great films. You know, I love Guillermo del Toro's work. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're still out there doing it now, but you don't see as much of, you know, the technique, you know, or craftsmanship that you used to. Now it seems like, oh, a lot of films are, you know, they just grab a camera and it's almost all handheld camera. And it's like, okay, where's the editing technique? Where's the shots, the angles, the composition, you know? So when I do see those films, I really, I'm a big, you know, proponent of those I mean, you know many people are like yeah that new Mad Max movie is just all action but it wasn't I mean each frame of that film is like a painting like a classical painting the composition and the choreography is just phenomenal to be studied every time I've watched it probably like six or seven times now but each time I'm seeing the things in the frame or looking at the movement and uh, again you know just phenomenal I'm all about craft and technique I really like that and I do my own storyboards I've done short films as well so you could you could watch some of these short films on my YouTube channel. One is called uh, Mind Time, 
another is called The Portrait, and there's another one called Rough Crowd. And, and for those two, you know, I always do my storyboards. I plan it out so by the time I make the film, it's just, okay, now we know exactly, you know, the game plan, where we're going with this. Um, so, you know, big influence, you know, um, by those filmmakers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly been very interesting. Uh, what can I say? Serial killing is yeah. always good. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's always fascinating. And they say, well, you know, you know, who's your favorite? And it's like, well, yeah. how, do we say, how do we say we have a favorite? But it's, it's almost, it, again, they've almost become these movie monsters in a sense, you know, because it is so far removed. And that's why I like to focus on these pre-1930s serial killers, because they got away with it for a long time. They're usually psychologically more uh, abnormal. Plus, it's the hunt. I mean, you know, the crime detection methods, or especially the lack of during those time periods, is just as fascinating. I mean, how Detective Geyer, in the Holmes case, used the little girl Alice's letters where she had written the states and the places where they stayed, and he went state to state, door to door. Have you seen this man and children? Have you seen this man and children? Until he found their bodies. I mean, that's almost unthinkable. You know, that that could be accomplished, but he did. He found all three of those children just by using the letters that she had written and going door to door. I mean, it was phenomenal. And, you know, Albert Fish, how he was caught as well. You know, kind of there was a little, you know, blurb put in a newspaper, which caused him to write the mother of one of the victims. And they traced the letterhead to somewhere he used to stay. And then they called there and they said, oh, yeah, he's coming back next week to pick up a check. So here's the detective, and then they call the detective, the boarding house, and said, you know, they tell the detective, well, he's here now. The detective, you know, walks in the room, and here's this little old man, I'm assuming, just sitting there, that, you know, killed and cannibalized who knows how many children. And again, I think, you know, the early stories fascinated me so much because now you do see these shows where they wrap it up within an hour, and, and yes, it does take longer than that. You know, there, it takes a long time still, but with with video cameras everywhere, with DNA typing, fingerprinting, you know, it is a little bit easier now than it was back in, you know, pre-1930. So, um, you know, again, I, I, you know, there was a great book called The Alienist that kind of talked about the beginning of, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, these forensic psychologists and crime detection methods, which was a great book, a fictional book, but it actually used, it, it used some, real people in it, like uh, Teddy Roosevelt when he was a police commissioner in New York, and I think um, Jesse Pomeroy, he was in it as well. But yeah, you know, I, I just love, I, I love history, I love, you know, macabre things, and, and you know, who are my favorites? It would probably be um, Holmes, Dean, and Fitch, because to me, they kind of epitomize these early serial killers, and, and the gruesomeness of their crimes are literally what they laid the groundwork for future serial killers. I mean, you know, Albert Fish, I think, was the worst because of, you know, the things that he did to his victims, but he also tortured himself. And I see these serial killers as souls in torment. They don't just wake up one day and say, well, I'm just going to start eating people or collecting their body parts. There's something deep-rooted in, in their psychology going back to childhood that created them, and it's my job to investigate, to find out what that may have been, or at least, you know, bring up some of those theories. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting subject. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, anytime. You know, I'd love to be on again. The mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me. Back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.